This is Positively Farming Media. gardening in 2020, you likely remember the shortage of seeds that happened when the world shut down and suddenly everybody was growing a garden. Many seed companies were overwhelmed with the influx of orders and that shortage continued into the 2021 season. There's nothing more disappointing than to peruse a beautiful seed catalog and make out your list of favorites to grow, only to be told the company is sold out. Enter seed saving. If you grow heirloom or open pollinated varieties, you can avoid this problem altogether by saving your own seeds. Not only is it cost effective, but oftentimes you are creating a stronger strain of that variety that is going to work particularly well in your garden each subsequent year because the parent plant has been exposed to and survived everything your climate can throw at it. Today on Just Grow Something, we're digging into why we should add seed saving to our list of garden tasks even if it isn't for every variety we grow in our garden. We'll talk about the practice of saving seeds, including plant selection and pollination control, and go step-by-step into how to extract, clean, dry, and store those precious commodities to be sure that we have plenty of options for our gardens for years to come. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen, and I started gardening 18 years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard. When we moved to a five-acre homestead, I expanded that garden to half an acre, and I found such joy and purpose in feeding my family and friends. This newfound love for digging in the dirt and providing for others prompted my husband and I to grow our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm. When I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, I discovered there is so much power in food, and I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. On this podcast, we explore crop information, soil health, pests and diseases, plant nutrition, our own nutrition, and so much more in the world of food and gardening. So grab your garden journal and a cup of coffee and get ready to just grow something. So if you were in the fall garden challenge last week, I hope that you've gotten a jump on getting everything ready for fall. I know some of you registered late and may still be working your way through the challenge, and I am glad so many of you decided that you might give the fall garden a try this season. I heard from several of you asking when I would be opening up registration for the Plan Like a Pro course. If you're a new listener, I created a digital course this past spring designed to take gardeners step-by-step through the process of planning their garden for an entire year, spring through the fall and beyond. From site design and crop selection to succession planting and intercropping, the course is designed to help you get the most out of your garden no matter what size space you have. I intended to only open the course up once per year in the late winter, but have been told that some of you want to get a jump on the planning for next season now. And I thought I was a planner. (laughs) You guys are incredible. I also recognize that the third and fourth largest demographic of listeners of this show are from New Zealand and Australia. Yes, I see you, my gardening friends down under, and I know that you are coming into late winter and spring starts for you in just a couple of months. So this is the perfect time for you to be doing your planning. 
So I have opened up the Plan Like a Pro course for a fall registration. You can go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash plan to get all the details and to sign up. The course is self-paced, so you can take all the time you need to work through the modules. You'll have immediate access to the course. You'll have all the replays from the live trainings that I did with the students from the spring registration. And one of you listeners somehow figured out that I had reopened the course and jumped in to register even before I came on here to announce it. Tanya Harold, I'm talking to you. <laughs> I think getting a jump on next season by using the Plan Like a Pro course in combination with the Fall Garden Challenge is a fantastic idea, and I'm pretty sure that's what Tanya has done. So kudos to you. If you want to join her, you will have access to the Plan Like a Pro course for as long as I offer it with every update that comes each season, including audio and video and downloads and live trainings. So justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash plan is where you go and I will link to it in the show notes. So saving seeds from our vegetable garden, I think, is an essential practice that every gardener should at least try to do once. There are a lot of different reasons for this, not the least of which is just being cost effective as somebody who started gardening on a very, very tight or next to nothing budget and did it so that I could save money in the household. Um, if I had known how to save seeds, I would have been able to avoid the expense of purchasing new seeds the following year. This can, of course, lead to a significant cost savings, especially for those of us who have really large gardens or if you like to grow a wide variety of things, because oftentimes these seed packets only come you know, in, in certain sizes and you may only need one or two plants of each different variety if you really like to grow a wide variety of things. And then you have to worry about, you know, keeping those seeds, saving them properly and making sure that you get through them before they go bad or they, they are no longer viable. And then you find yourself buying a bunch of different little packets for all these different things that you want to grow. So saving your own seeds can be a very cost-effective way to do this. Um, some vegetable varieties may be rare, um, especially our heirloom varieties. They've been passed down through generations and they have very unique traits, um, different flavors, really rich histories to them, especially some of the heirloom tomato varieties that I've grown have very interesting backgrounds. So saving seeds from these varieties is going to help to preserve that genetic diversity, but also that cultural heritage that comes with them. And then one thing that I alluded to in the intro is that adaptation to our local conditions and our local climates and mesoclimates. So over time, seeds that are saved from plants that have performed really, really well in our garden are going to adapt to our local climate and our soil conditions and the conditions in our specific yard or garden. So these are locally adapted seeds. We often call these land races, and they are just better suited to our garden's environment, which leads them to be even stronger and more resilient the more we save from those strong, resilient plants. I also think that seed saving is an important part of sustainable gardening and a level of self-sufficiency. 
it means that we can rely less on commercial seed sources as gardeners, which we have seen can be subject to all kinds of changes, whether it's in availability or if it's in pricing. Um, as costs of things start to go up, if we can save our own seeds, we are eliminating that as a cost factor in our gardening. And if you garden with kids, Seed saving can be a really good educational experience. It can help to teach them uh, about all the different parts of the plant life cycle and about pollination and even about genetics in a way that might be more interesting for them than what they might sit and learn in a classroom setting. And the other thing too is, you know, seed saving can turn into seed sharing, and that starts to build more of a community. If you are a gardener who saves seeds and you get with a group of people who also save seeds, whether those are family members or friends or just other gardeners in your area, and you can trade those seeds out and have little seed exchanges amongst your group, that fosters a real sense of community. I know in one of the Facebook pages that I am a part of, the Kansas City Gardening Group, um, every once in a while, somebody will organize a seed exchange. Sometimes it is sanctioned by the group. Sometimes it's just something that somebody sets up. But it's a great way to meet all these people that you sort of know from being online. You can show up and meet them in real life. And you get the opportunity to trade seeds with people who are growing in your same area. And then we go back to those land races again. You're getting seeds that have gone through, you know, similar weather events as to where you are gardening. And so you are getting those seeds that are definitely more adapted to local conditions. So not only are you getting better seeds, but you're also building a community at the same time. And of course, you know, all of this seed saving is done with these open pollinated and or heirloom varieties. And since commercial agriculture often focuses on a more limited number of the high yielding varieties. If you can save seeds from a diverse variety of vegetables, that's going to help to maintain the biodiversity. And it's going to mean that some of the less common varieties aren't lost across the years. And honestly, it's just fun. You know, seed saving can be very gratifying. It can be a very enjoyable aspect of gardening. You don't have to do it with every single variety that you grow. But you know, it's one of those things just like growing something that ends up on your own plate and you can look and be proud of yourself because you're eating something that you grew. Well, witnessing the full life cycle of the plant from seed to fruit and then back to seed again so you can start it over again the next year is also a very rewarding experience. Now, I mentioned that we're talking about saving seeds from things that are open pollinated and or heirlooms. And saving seeds from our own gardens is going to require some careful consideration to make sure that the seeds are viable and that they are eventually going to produce healthy, productive plants for the next season. So some of the considerations that we need to think about when we talk about saving seeds, number one is plant selection. You want to choose to save seeds from the best specimens of your healthiest, most robust, and disease-free plants. We save the best and we eat the rest, right? So if you have that prize-winning tomato, that's the one that you want to save the seeds from. You don't want to be eating that one. I mean, you know, you can eat it if you can also save the seeds too, but that's what I mean by save the best and eat the rest, right? We want to save the seeds from the best specimens that we grow. But we also need to know 
whether the plants that we are saving are open pollinated or are hybrids. If they are hybrid varieties, they are not going to reliably produce the same traits in the subsequent generations. We need to make sure that we are saving open pollinated varieties because they will produce offspring with traits that are similar to the parent plant in the next season. So that's why we are choosing open pollinated varieties to save and we are choosing the best version of those open pollinated varieties to save from. Now, in order to do this, to maintain that purity of those seeds in those open pollinated plants, we have to prevent cross-pollination, which means that we need to keep the different varieties of the same species at a safe distance from each other. This is particularly important if you are saving seeds from something that is rare or from heirloom varieties so that you avoid unintentional hybridization. And this is where I think it's important to kind of refer back to what we mean by cross-pollination. So if you want to control the pollination, you want to ensure that you have seed purity. You want to make sure that you do not have two varieties of the same species together. You're not going to know in the current season if they cross-pollinate it. I often see comments from people, especially online, when somebody is asking a question about a fruit that looks a little weird or you know, a zucchini that doesn't look quite right. And you'll often get people say, oh, well, it's, it's a result of cross-pollination. We need to be very careful when we say things like this because in anything that is a fruit, meaning it has the seeds on the inside, cross-pollination does not affect this year's plant. It affects this year's seeds, which means you're not going to see that cross-pollination until that seed is planted and it grows a plant and that plant produces a fruit. And then you'll see whether or not you have the traits from two different plants at that point. So if you are growing two different varieties of zucchini or you have a zucchini and a yellow squash or whatever it is, and they're growing right next to each other, your plants, even if they are cross-pollinating, are not going to produce fruit that look any different from what you would expect them to. It would be the seeds that you saved from those that would produce a fruit that would look different than what you expect it to do. So this is why pollination control is important, um, which means you might want to consider using hand pollination techniques or covering the flowers with bags to prevent unwanted cross-pollination. But if you are not intending to save seeds from those things, then it really doesn't matter. You can plant your zucchini next to your squash. You can plant your cantaloupe next to your cucumbers and it's not going to be a big deal. So if it's open pollinated and you want to save the seeds, then you need to make sure that you're doing some isolation and some pollination control. Otherwise, it really doesn't matter. This is not the case, by the way, in things like corn because the seed is what we eat. And so if you cross-pollinate corn, it definitely does affect this year's um, crop, just, just as a side note. So when we are looking to save seeds, we want the most mature fruit or vegetable to save the seeds from. We want it to be completely ripened on the plant. We want it to go beyond usually the stage when we would normally harvest them. You want them to be fully mature and because you want the seeds in the inside to be fully matured and ready to be planted essentially. We don't want them green. We don't want them unripe. A very good example of this is, we'll go back to zucchini again. So normally, 
summer squash, we are harvesting when it is very young and it is very tender. We don't want them full of huge seeds. Even when they get to that larger size, maybe we've let them go a little bit further and we're going to use them for zucchini boats or zucchini bread or whatever, they are still not in their mature state. You would need to leave that zucchini on until it quite literally gets to like baseball bat sized before those seeds in the inside are going to be considered mature and be able to reproduce. So a good rule of thumb with that is, you know, a zucchini, normally we're harvesting them, they are tender. If that skin can still be pierced with your thumbnail, then it's not mature yet. It should be very tough. It should almost resemble a winter squash at that point. The rind should be very thick. Then we know it is mature. The thing about this is if you allow your plant to do this, and this could be zucchini, it could be tomatoes, it could be peppers, any of these things, if you allow that fruit to stay on the plant long enough to where it is fully mature specimen, it's also usually going to be signaling to the plant that it is time to stop producing. So it's a fine line here when we are collecting what it is that we want to save as far as seeds are concerned. With tomatoes, it's not quite uh, as critical because, you know, you can let a tomato fully ripen on the vine and once it's fully ripe and you pick it, it's going to continue to produce more, you know, tomatoes unless you're just letting them rot there on the vine. But with zucchinis and, and things like that, it's a little bit different. So I would suggest that if you have a variety that you're wanting to save, you either wait until the end of the season and just go ahead and let those last few fruits remain on the plant and go ahead and get to full maturity. Or you just choose one plant of several if you're growing several of them and you decide that that's the one that you're going to save the seeds off of and the rest of them you just continue to harvest. So there's a little bit of a game playing here. So once you figure out that, you know, you've got the mature one and it is super ripe, then of course we have to extract the seeds and get them cleaned and figure out how to dry them and how to store them. So the seed extraction and the cleaning are very crucial steps in this. So right after this, we're going to talk the proper procedures that ensure the seeds remain viable and free from contaminants and some general guidelines on how to do that. So when we are ready to extract the seeds and clean them, we want to properly extract the seeds from the fruit or the vegetable and clean them thoroughly. We want to remove any remaining pulp or debris that's going to prevent mold and keep them from rotting during storage. So again, choosing fully mature and ripe fruits or vegetables for this, we want them to be at their peak ripeness. We want those seeds to be fully developed. If they are underdeveloped or if they come from very overripe fruit, then they may not be viable. Now, the extraction method that we use for taking the seeds out of the fruit or the vegetable is going to vary depending on what it is that we are harvesting. So for things like tomatoes and cucumbers, any other fleshy fruits, generally you want to cut the fruit in half and just scoop out the seeds along with whatever the gel-like substance is that's holding those, fruit, uh, those seeds, that's suspending the seeds. 
place the seeds with the gel into a, a mason jar or any other sort of small container and add a little bit of water. I usually will just shake it up a little bit and then just allow the mixture to sit for a few days. It's actually going to ferment at this point. Usually two to four days on the counter is going to be just fine. This is going to break down that gel that is holding or suspending those seeds and it's going to separate the seeds from that gel. So if you just kind of shake it up a little bit every day, you'll see when the gel sort of separates away from the seeds. And then I will rinse the seeds um, after the, the gel has has come off. So you do this very carefully so that you obviously don't lose the seeds going down the, uh, the drain of your sink. Um, and usually I will just, you know, put them in the lid of the mason jar and sort of run some water through and make sure that I'm leaving the seeds behind, but the gel and stuff is going away. Um, for peppers and beans, these are a lot easier. You just pull the seeds out of the, the pepper or out of the bean pod um, and spread them out on a paper towel and just allow them to air dry. Um, squashes and melons, um, they don't generally have that same sort of goopy gel-like substance like the tomatoes and the cucumbers and do, so you can just scoop those out and rinse them. I have a fine mesh strainer that I just throw them into. You can rinse them under running water just to remove any of the pulp. Um, just make sure that you are removing as much of that residual debris or pulp as you can because this is going to prevent the mold or any kind of fungal growth to happen during storage. So again, those ones that have that gel-like coating, the fermenting part of this does really help with getting rid of any of that funky stuff that might want to be attached to it. And then if you rinse them, again, in like a fine mesh strainer or something under the water and then just kind of rub them together, you're going to get all that gel off. All of the other seeds that don't require fermentation, you can really just rinse them under running water and rub those seeds to make sure you're getting any of the debris off. Drying them is as simple as placing them in a single layer on a paper towel or on a screen of some sort if you have a lot of them and just allowing them to air dry completely in a well-ventilated area. I have an episode that I will link to where I talked about the very specifics of seed staving and moisture content that kind of breaks it down in a more scientific manner. Um, you just want to make sure there's not a bunch of debris or anything left on them because you do not want them to mold while they're in storage. I have had this happen before where I, you know, I didn't get all the debris off and they weren't completely dry and I opened them up the next spring and they were really, really funky. It's only happened once. <laughs> um, it's just a matter of paying attention. So once they're dry, we want to figure out how to store them. And an airtight container, something like a glass jar um, or paper envelopes in a cool dry, dark location is the best idea. If you do put them in glass and it's going to be in some place where they are going to be exposed to light off and on, say if you've got them in a cupboard or a cabinet that gets opened frequently, then you want to put them inside a paper envelope inside those glass jars before, you know, putting them away just so the light doesn't get to them. There are all kinds of fancy ways to do this. There's different envelopes. There's different, you know, little containers and stuff that you can use. Use whatever works best for you. Just make sure that you are labeling each one of those containers with the type of seed that it is. So if it's a cucumber or it's a squash or it's a tomato, um, make sure you note what the variety is, especially if these are rare seeds or heirloom seeds that you are trying to save. And then also the date that you harvested them. This is going to be important um, just because we want to know how long these have been in storage because certain seeds last certain amount of years and others not quite as long. I will link to 
a download that I have that will tell you exactly how long some of your suites uh, can be saved or how long they last in storage. But you want to make sure that you have clear records of what you have saved, including the variety and the collection date. It's also a good idea too. I mean, obviously you may not put this right on the jar that you're storing them in, but any specific notes that you have about the growing conditions or how well they performed in your garden might be a good idea. If you have a garden journal, you can even have a seed saving sheet that you can reference that has some record keeping that helps you keep track of, you know, the success of each one of these seed batches that you do so that you know that you are getting better results every single year because that's kind of one of the reasons we want to do this, right? Another consideration for this is testing the viability of the seeds. So we don't want to spend all this time saving these seeds and putting them away for the spring only to realize come spring that none of them germinate because something went wrong somewhere along the way, especially if we're new at this. It's not that this is a difficult process, um, but we are dealing with you know, live plant material. So sometimes something happens and they just don't germinate the next year. And we don't want to wait until that happens to realize that, uh-oh, we're not going to have the seeds that we wanted for that season. So it's a good idea to test a small sample of your saved seeds before you like plant a huge batch of them to get going in the next growing season. So I will link to another um, episode or article. I can't remember which one it is. I'll have to look, but I'll link to something that I have um, that I know we've talked about before about how to do a simple germination test at home to figure out whether or not your seeds are viable before you put them all away for the season. So if you know that you're going to want, you know, say 20 seeds to start for the next season, you may want to save 30 of them and then test 10 of them to make sure that you're getting the germination rate that you want. And I will leave a link to that on how to do that. And of course, you want to always remember to handle your seeds with clean, dry hands and to avoid using wet hands or containers during the extraction and cleaning process. Properly cleaned and stored seeds are definitely going to have a better chance of germinating and producing healthy plants in the following growing season. Okay, so even if you are just now getting started in seed saving, it's not something that you thought about earlier in the season, so you don't have your varieties sort of separated from each other. It's not too late to do that. Like I said, you can cover the blooms to make sure they're not cross-pollinating. You can hand-pollinate if you want to. Tomatoes are usually very easy to do if you have some distance between the varieties because they are mostly self-fertile. They are self-pollinating. So, you know hybridization is a little bit less likely unless you have a lot of insect or a lot of wind activity. Um, beans are easy to do. You know, get started with just some simple stuff, some easy stuff, and then go from there once you kind of get the bug and decide that this is something fun that you might like to try. If you don't enjoy it, that's okay. At least you will have developed the skill. And that is something that I think is really, really important. It's part of the reason why I do this podcast is because I'm so invested in seeing people at least learn how to grow their own stuff so that if they have no choice, they can do it. The same thing goes for saving seeds. I think it's an essential practice for all of the different reasons that we talked about. And I think it can lead to all of us just becoming better gardeners. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and save some of those seeds, will you? And we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. 
For more information about today's topic, go to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com, where you can find all the episodes, show notes, articles, courses, newsletter sign-up, and more. I'd also love for you to head to Facebook and join our gardening community in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning and keep growing.